0: Let's take off baby, let's just drive honey, into the night sky, to the sunset shine, into the day baby. Let's go travel land, let's go travel land, let's go travel land, let's go travel land.
1: This is Travel Michigan. I'm Dave Lorenz from Pure Michigan. Have you ever gone fishing in one of the big lakes? Gold Coast Fishing is ready to lure you in as a fishing fan in St. Joseph. It's the sweetest thing about this time of year, pure Michigan maple syrup, and they're brewing up a batch in Jones. The Motor City's National Heritage Area is where you'll experience the place where American automobiles were born. And the League of Michigan Bicyclists is making your ride safe and fun. We travel Michigan next where your trip begins at michigan.org. Let's go
0: traveling. Let's go traveling.
1: Welcome to Travel Michigan. I'm Dave Lorenz from Pure Michigan, and boy, do we have a great lineup of guests to talk to today on the Travel Michigan radio program. Each week at this time, we get to explore the state of Michigan virtually in this way, and we prepare you to get out there and enjoy yourself in pure Michigan. This is going to be a great show, so I hope you can stick around for the entire hour. We're going to start out by heading to the southwest part of the lower peninsula, the beautiful town of St. Joseph. And let's bring in Todd Brill. Todd is Captain Todd Brill of Gold Coast Fishing. Captain, how are we doing today?
2: Doing great, doing great.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Well, Gold Coast Fishing Company, pretty obvious. You uh, offer fishing uh, trips and uh, show people how to go fishing. How long you've been doing this?
2: Uh, This is my 14th season.
1: And, you know, for, for what you do, that's a long time, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so now... Uh, as you've done these various excursions and you've offered them to different uh, anglers of different experience level, have you learned how to, um, to show the various you know, level of expertise uh, anglers? Have you, have you offered different types of trips to people of different experience level?
2: Yeah, we, we offer a, a number of different trips, whether it's out on the big lake for the salmon and trout, uh, we also do perch fishing out there, but a lot of river trips as well, and for all experience levels, whether you're an experienced angler wanting to go after salmon and trout you know during the wintertime on the river, or if you're looking to get kids out first time fishing, we offer family fun fishing trips on the river that are great starter trips. You don't have to worry about the big waves and that, and it's a little bit more hands-on. Um, with the Lake Michigan stuff, it's a lot of trolling, and you're targeting the larger salmon and trout out there. Um, you get a lot of, you know, a lot of fish typically on those trips, where the river trips are, tend to be a little bit more hands-on.
1: One boat, or do you have uh, have different boats that you use, one for the big lake and one for, for rivers?
2: Yes, we, we got multiple boats. Uh, we run a 30-foot Cherokee out on Lake Michigan for the the big lake stuff and on the river we have a tritune that during the winter time is enclosed and heated uh, so you can stay comfortable out there all winter you know through spring fishing and then um, in the summertime is open um, but very stable pl- platform for people to fish off of and we found just over the years that's that's worked the best.
1: What's the perfect number of people you want out uh, on the big lake trips? Do you bring you know, a couple of people, four people, something like that?
2: I mean, on the On the Big Lake, um, all of your licensed charter captains are licensed to take out six people maximum. Mm. Um, And and on the Big Lake, um, six isn't, you know, isn't too bad. You, You love to see the groups of four, you know, unless it just gives everybody more rod time and a little bit more room on the boat. And that goes for the river as well. You know we'll take six people out you know often, but we work with a lot of other captains too, so if you ever have large groups, we can get multiple boats going out.
1: Well, fill us, it's us a in really fun time. Yeah, fill us in on the process. Um, I know of course, obviously they'd get a hold of you. They'd go to your website gcfishco.com, make a reservation, and then what do they do from there? Because I would suspect they're going you're going to want them to wear a certain type of gear. I don't know if they need a license. How do they handle all that?
2: Yeah, the website will really walk you through it all. Um, There's a list of stuff. You'll get an email before your trip telling you when to show up. It'll also have a list of things to bring and things we provide as far as all the fishing gear, tackle, bait, anything like that. We supply all that. Really a person, all they need to bring is their own food and drinks and appropriate clothing for the weather. You can um, always give us a call before your trip to see what, you know, we suggest weather-wise to wear. Um, And then anyone 17 years of age or older are required to have a fishing license, which you can purchase just a one-day fishing license for $10 uh, through the DNR website.
1: Yeah, so you don't have to go even to a building. You can you can get that license online yeah. as well. And and you do show people all about that, how to how to get prepared at the website. That mm-hmm. that's good to see as well. Um and, and what would you consider a good fishing day? How many how many fish are you gonna, you're going to you're going to catch?
2: You know, the the big lake you're you're looking for numbers. And um whether that's five fish or 25 fish a lot of times depends on on the day of fishing and the weather. Um, but, a, you know, a good day out on Lake Michigan, you got 20, you know, between salmon and trout and a combination out there. So it's a lot of, there's a lot of fish for a family. <laughs> well, <laughs> or,
1: and, you know, I've never, friend. I've never gone river fishing with an outfitter, but I have been on the big lake. And I love the fact that you guys are right there with the nets to, to pull in the fish mm-hmm. and we don't have to deal that. We just, you know, get them hooked and then reel them in and one thing i hope you do is show people how to reel them in those big ones uh, i had to learn the hard way i thought my arm was going to fall <laughs> off but it's a lot of fun
2: oh it is it is and and uh, as a captain you enjoy seeing the the people catch the fish as much as if you were if you yourself were reeling them in and, and uh that is that you know we talk everybody through it and uh you know it's not age specific uh, you could tell you everything from little kids to you know whatever age can enjoy it, and uh, any experience level, we're able to to work with the people to get them in.
1: Well, on the Big Lake, I know you're going to get salmon, steelhead trout, those types, Uh, and, of course, in the rivers, the smaller fish. So you're, you're going to get, you know, for the most part, you're going to get the smaller fish. But the thing is, you have this wide variety of fishing style you get to consider if you head out with Gold Coast Fishing. I love that idea. Not a lot of the charter operators give you kind of both options. So uh, get a hold of Captain Todd Brill at his website, gcfishco.com, to learn more. And then head to St. Joe, this coming late winter, early spring, and enjoy it. It's going to be really a lot of fun. It really is. This is the time of the year that we start making maple syrup, and we'll tell you where to do that and how to do it next here on Travel Michigan, where your trip begins at Michigan.org. Travel Michigan. I'm Dave Lorenz from Pure Michigan. This is that really special time of the year where everything, you know, starts to thaw just about everywhere in in Michigan, except for way in the UP. It's going to be, uh, uh, you know, a place of snow for for a little while longer. But um, the people who live in the forest love this time of year, especially the areas that have maple trees, because this is the time they go out and they make various things out of maple syrup. They, um, they will tap the trees and, and they make syrup and they make candy and they make a bunch of things. So there are a lot of places where you can go all around Michigan and you can learn about how this is done, the entire process, um, and how how in some ways difficult it is and how easy it is in other ways. So let's find out, give you a little taste, excuse the pun, of what it's like to make maple syrup by bringing in Christy Olson. Christy and her husband Daniel are owners of Maple Rose Sugar House. Where are you located, Christy?
3: Oh, uh, We're located in Jones, Michigan.
1: Now, Jones, let's see, Jones is, uh, I've been there before, is it uh, basically around Coldwater area?
3: Um, no, we're south of Three Rivers,
1: that's it, right. So, yes. Yep. You know, I'm always getting that kind of that 12 corridor mixed up. So uh, in the, the Three Rivers area in the a little town of Jones, do you live on a, yep. a farm then? Um, we do. And you, most of your uh, product that you produce at this time of the year come out of the forest.
3: It did. Yes.
1: So, um, you know, tell us about uh, the process itself. I would presume that you have maple trees all over the place and i know that there are different tapping techniques i've seen traditional tapping techniques where people have this little spigot and a little hook on it and they hang a bucket i've seen more modern techniques so fill us in on the process for how you tap your maple trees at maple rose sugar house
3: yeah so we have three sugar bushes that we collect from and we put in a tap that's only uh, we only make a hole in the tree that's probably about um, a quarter of an inch, and we hook tubing up to that. That tubing is then um, all, it looks like a giant spiderweb out hmm. in the woods, but it all comes to a central tubing, and then it all collects into a tank, and it's, um, we use vacuum, which then pulls all that sap to that central location uh, for us, and then we're able to go and collect all that sap. Um with our semi trailer um, tanker and haul that back to the sugar house, um, and we have um, six children. But there's a few um, maple trees around the farm that the kids use um, buckets, so they will the go old ahead style. and tap. Their- yeah. Yes, they yeah. will do old style.
1: Well, well, with so- this, you know that that newer technique, which I've seen a lot of the the bigger. Uh, maple syrup makers uh, use that technique these days. You have all these, you know, this network of tubes out there, kind of rubbery plastic tubes. Yeah. Um, how do they not get all gummed up? Because I would assume that the sap is pretty sticky.
3: Yep. We, um, they get at the end of the season, we end up, you know, sucking all that out and <laughs> we flush those lines. Um, as best we can and then that first part of the season when that first sap flows then that sap just kind of um, helps clean out those lines
1: and and the reason that this is the time of the year to to tap those trees is because as the weather gets warm the uh, the tree is kind of kind of pulling the moisture out of the the ground and then that that moisture and all that sap is is running through the trees and since you tap it then it then it goes out that line as well
3: Yep.
1: It's really interesting. I, I think the whole it thing is. is interesting process. Now, when people come and visit you, uh, do are they allowed to go out into the fields into where you're actually tapping the trees or do they stay kind of right there where you process it?
3: Um, they kind of stay where we process it. Our, the We have three sugar bushes and they're not they're not close to us. The closest one is like a five-minute drive just wow. north of us. Wow. And so we, we're trucking all our sap at this point. Um, but the trees right there that the kids, the children tap, people are able to go see that um, and, you know, see it coming out of the tap and see how the kids um, tap the trees. But we always welcome people to go to the sugar bush and – to, um, to see how it's done out there. Actually, we work with MSU on two of our sugar bushes. Um, it's um, MSU's, so a couple of their woods is what we tap on, and the public's actually welcome to go in there mm. anytime. There's people that go and hike in there all the time. So uh,
1: It sounds like an interesting thing, you know, and, and you know, it's unfortunate, but a lot of younger people, actually a lot of older people too, really don't have an idea where food comes from. So right. having the opportunity to go there and and see where uh, real maple trees are tapped, and then you get yeah. all this rather kind of water-like substance, right? It's pretty pretty thin yeah. when you when you gather yeah. it. So what do you do from that? Once you get all this liquid, you, you have it in these these big barrels. You bring them to your processing area. What happens from that point?
3: Um, from there, we send it through a reverse osmosis, which actually takes the water out of the sap and that then we take all that the sugar content and we call it what we call concentrate and then we'll send that through an evaporator Um, and that evaporator um, then warm heats up all that and we heat it up to a certain temperature and basically until it's maple syrup so it's it's a pretty pretty neat process Um, if we did not use that RO just because we're getting thousands of gallons of sap at a time Um, we would probably never stop uh, boiling. But we're saving energy because we are using that reverse osmosis and taking some of that extra water out.
1: Yeah, because most of that process, at least in the past, was always boiling the water, and you're you're kind of boiling it off and you're getting the steam going up, and that's the water uh, leaving. Um, And and so can we actually see that? Can we see that process when we visit?
3: Yes. Yes. When you come visit us, you'll be able to – see exactly how we make the maple syrup. You'll be able to go into the sugar house, see the evaporator and the RO. You'll be able to see the tanks where we put um, put the sap when we bring it back from the sugar bush. And people really enjoy that because you can you can smell it. And we also give out samples of the maple syrup yeah. being made as well.
1: Yeah, I bet. So you have a uh, the Michigan Maple Festival that you have there each year. So you have the next two weekends, the 18th and 19th, and the 25th and 26th of March, you're inviting people to come on out, enjoy uh, watching this process, participating in a bunch of extra things. What else happens there at the farm during this uh, weekend or these two weekends?
3: Yeah, we serve a, a pancake and sausage breakfast all day long, and um, then we'll have activities. We're gonna have we have a pancake and um, eating contest. Um, we're gonna try to do some maple Olympics this year. Um, hopefully the weather will, will, be, um, will be good for that this year. Last year we got uh, froze out almost. Um, we're going to have some reenactors there. We'll have, a, we'll have a family that does a French colonial maple sugar camp, which huh. is really neat to see because you get to really see how they did it like in the 17th, 18th century. Um, we're also going to have Civil War reenactors. They come up and set up a Civil War camp, and they'll do drills throughout the day and include the public. Um, they're free to the public's free to um, interact with them and ask them questions and um, and then we'll also have some lumberjack encampment mm-hmm. as well and they will be sharing the mystery of Michigan the Michigan lumberjacks so we're kind of, they're new this year and we're really excited about having them uh, we also do a talent show and we have pen um, friends liturgical dance girls who come and. Um, do a show for us every year, and then we always invite um, anybody else who has a talent that they want to show. Um, it's a free show. It's not judged. It's just a family fun thing people like big, to share their talent yeah, if they want.
1: A big talent show is, is part of it as well. Well, that pancake eating contest gets me very interested <laughs> because I love pancakes, especially with good, freshly made Michigan maple syrup. So sounds like it's a good time. It's coming up the next couple of weekends, the 18th and 19th of March and March 25th and 26th at Maple Row Sugar House in Jones. Here's where you can find out more information. MichiganMapleFestival.com and MapleRowSugarhouse.com. Two websites you can go to to find out more. Our thanks to Christy Olson for being with us today. And we're headed to the Detroit area next here on Travel Michigan, where your trip begins at Michigan.org. It's Travel Michigan. I'm Dave Lorenz from Pure Michigan. If you were to ask the average person from anywhere else in the world what they know about Pure Michigan, what they generally say is they know about Detroit and they know about the Detroit auto scene and the Detroit music scene. That's almost always what I hear when I'm far away uh, and it's neat for them, for me, to hear them say those things, because those are so very true. We should be very proud of our heritage in these areas. And, and I would say especially with our motoring heritage. I mean, truly, if not for Michigan and the Detroit region, um, we would have been uh, walking around a lot longer <laughs> than we did. So the automotive story is is incredibly connected to the story about Pure Michigan. And that's why we have an area that we call the Motor Cities National Heritage Area. To tell us all about that area, let's bring in Bob Sadler. He is Communications Manager of Motor Cities National Heritage Area. And, Bob, you know, we usually think of Detroit first when we think of the Motor Cities National Heritage Area, but the area is quite large and, and takes in multiple communities, right?
0: Absolutely. There's a reason why our organization is called Motor Cities as opposed to Motor City. Mm-hmm. And and that's important because uh, our, our National Heritage Area, and it is uh, actually designated by an act of Congress, and it was signed by uh, the President back in 1998. Um, so we actually have 10,000 square miles in the Motor Cities National Heritage Area, and it includes not just metro detroit but it also goes up to flint and saginaw and west to lansing in the capital area and goes all the way west out to kalamazoo county did you know that they made yellow cabs in kalamazoo
1: i did in fact that's pretty cool that those yellow cabs that you most likely think about with old-timey cabs with the yellow and black little squares design on the side were made in Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, something we should be proud of.
0: Absolutely. And also, of course, the the western uh, gateway of Motor City's National Heritage Area is the wonderful Gilmore Car Museum in Hickory Corners.
1: Yeah, it's a very special place, America's largest automotive um, automobile museum. Uh, Very cool thing. So how did Motor City's National Heritage Area Come about because there are a lot of communities that are proud of you know what they do, but but here we are talking about autos today. How did it become a national heritage area?
0: Well, it, it all started, <clears throat> excuse me, back in the in the nineties, and there were a number of folks who who thought that uh, the fact that this truly is the area of the country that put the world on wheels, and uh, to come up with a way to recognize that in a more formal way. And the very first National Heritage Area was signed by President Reagan back in 1984. And so um, Motor Cities came to be, uh, was championed in Congress by the late Congressman John Dingell, and it was supported in the Senate by the late Senator Carl Levin. And it was actually signed by President Clinton on November 6th of 1998. And so November 6th of 2023 is going to be our 25th anniversary.
1: Can't believe it's been 25 years already. Uh, I am on the board uh, of Motor City's National Heritage Area, so I get a lot of updates. And uh, I kind of get the the scene from the inside from Bob and and Sean and the, the team over there. So I I know that there are a lot of things that are being looked at for the 25th anniversary. What are some of the things that people can do and see when they come into the area who are interested in Motor Cities?
0: Well, we have, you know, a phenomenal group of partner attractions that we promote. Many of them over the years have been recipients of grants from Motor Cities National Heritage Area to help them preserve Our automotive and and labor stories Um, we have in the Detroit area you know we have a lot of the ones you would traditionally think of like the Henry Ford like Meadowbrook Hall Um, but we also have you know some ones that we actually helped become automotive attractions like the Ford Paquette Avenue Plant Museum um, in the Milwaukee Junction neighborhood of Detroit Um, some perhaps, um, you know, lesser known, if we go a little west out to Ypsilanti, the Ypsilanti Auto Heritage Museum, the Michigan Firehouse Museum, also in Ypsilanti. If we go a little bit east and north of Detroit, um, the Stalls Automotive Collection, which is in uh, Chesterfield Township, and just has an amazing collection of, of not only vintage automobiles, but, you know, a lot of other uh, Pop culture and and music making machines and and just some really cool stuff. And of course, you know if you you go north up to Flint, you know the brand new uh, just recently reopened in July, uh, the Sloan Museum of Discovery. Uh, not only is a great place to take the whole family, but they also have an amazing collection of automobiles. Uh, the Arioles Olds Museum is in in Lansing and um, you know obviously has, a lot of fantastic uh, automobiles in their collection, you know, from the from the RE Olds and um, you know early, very early days of General Motors. And of course, like I said, you go west all the way out to the the Hickory Corners, where the the home of the Gilmore Car Museum, uh, which not only is the largest automotive attraction in America, it's it's actually the largest in North America, and you know, it's a it's a campus like experience. Um, and you can see a lot of great cars from uh, Gilmore's personal collection, but they also have uh, some museums on the campus that are devoted to specific brands like Pierce Arrow. And um, they even have a building that is full of nothing but hood ornaments and car logos.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty neat place. We're talking to Bob Sadler, communications manager, Motor City's National Heritage Area. Bob, uh, you know, I grew up on the west side of the state and I bet, even now, most of my friends uh, who I grew up with probably don't know ab- about a lot of these Detroit area automotive um, attractions that you've mentioned, like um, something like Piquette Plant. Uh, tell, tell us what the Piquette Plant is in, in just like a 20-second a, a uh, explanation.
0: Well, the the Piquette Plant is the original home of the Model T. In the, in the very early days of the Ford Motor Company. Um, obviously, Ford was founded in 1903, and they moved uh, their operations to Paquette uh, not long after that. And so it was actually the, the place where the Model T was was first created and engineered, and it was the first place that it was actually manufactured, until they moved to the larger Highland Park facility, where Henry Ford perfected his his version of the moving assembly line. So Paquette is actually the original home of the Model T and you can actually see, you know, Henry Ford's office and you can see the, the famous secret room hmm. where they created and 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 made it happen uh to obviously create the, the, the car that was affordable, the car for the masses, as as Henry Ford put it, and truly the car that revolutionized the industry and literally put this country and the world on wheels.
1: And, of course, that's on Paquette just off of Woodward uh, between downtown and basically the cultural center in Detroit. Um, okay, here's another one. Meadowbrook. A lot of people I grew up never heard of Meadowbrook, which is kind of shocking in a way.
0: Well, Meadowbrook is is actually the um, it was the home that was built uh, by Matilda Dodge, um, who was the widow of of one of the two Dodge brothers. I'm not remembering which one off the top of my mm-hmm. head, out of Horace and John, but um, Meadowbrook Hall was 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 her home, and it is a national historic landmark. And of course, you know, it was built from the fruits and the profits of what the Dodge brothers created, um, you know, they started off as as automotive suppliers, and then they decided that, you know, they could build their own cars. And so in in the 19-teens, they started uh, the Dodge Brothers Company, and, you know, they were making great cars. Um, Of course, both of of the brothers died in 1920, and uh, it wasn't for another five or six years that uh, Walter Chrysler uh, bought Dodge. But uh, Meadowbrook is—it's a beautiful home and grounds, and um, you know it's—it's—it's it's, it's something that you can tour, um, and then in the in the holiday season. Uh, in December, they, they put uh, a beautiful uh, set of light displays and have uh, the inside of the houses wonderfully decorated for the holidays. So it's a great place that you can visit year-round.
1: You do a great job spinning the stories and telling the tales of uh, these really important places where important things happened. And often where important things are happening today as we transition from what we've known as the automobile into, you know, EV technology, electric vehicle technology. So Motor Cities National Heritage Area both celebrates history. Make sure you're aware of what's happened in this big area, Detroit to Flint to Lansing to Kalamazoo and back around, and so much more. It's really a special area. And to find out more about what you can see and do in this region, go to MotorCities.org. Uh, and our thanks to Bob Sadler, from Motor City's uh, National Heritage Area for being with us today. We're going to talk about transportation of a different type, bicycles. Next, here on Travel Michigan, where your trip begins at Michigan.org. travel michigan i'm dave lorenz from pure michigan as we travel around the state of michigan on the radio here you know we were just talking to the motor cities national heritage area folks and it gets me thinking that most of the travel around michigan and to michigan comes from people who drive here and you don't just kind of accidentally get to michigan you know we do have these four great great lakes that are touching on our borders So we're surrounded by them. You're not going to just accidentally come into Michigan, as you might in Ohio and Indiana and some others, uh, and kind of pass through them. But in Michigan, if you're coming, you intend to get here. And you're usually driving, but an increasing number of people are coming here either by bike or coming here to bike, bicycling. I mean, bikes as in bicycles. Uh, bicycling is becoming more and more popular in the state of Michigan. And I'm really thrilled about that because it is a great way to see and do things. I I would call it a more intimate way to experience a place when you're getting there by bikes. And we're also starting to become um, uh, more accommodating to bikes in a lot of our communities with, you know, wider bike lanes and things like this. So it's a good time to bike around the state or consider biking around the state. And nobody knows how to bike around the state more so than the League of Michigan Bicyclists. We're going to get some ideas and some tips and some maybe tours that you want to go on from them today by asking Neil Glazebrook. Neil is the events director at the League of Michigan Bicyclists. Where are you located, Neil?
4: Thanks, Dave. I'm actually located myself in Howell, Michigan. Mm -hmm but our office is in Lansing, Michigan.
1: Yeah, I thought your office was there, but these days, you know, offices, what are they? We're all virtual everywhere. (laughs) We're all, you know, having our offices in different places. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, So how much do you bike in a, a regular week, you know, in, you know, weather when it's easy to bike around?
4: Well, I'm one of the crazy ones that I bike year round. So I generally, in the winter months, weather permitting, try to get 40 to 60 miles in. And in the summer months, that might vary to more like 100 to 200 miles a week.
1: I am so jealous. I shouldn't have asked you that question. I knew it was going to be something like that. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a runner, so I try to get out there and run with my friends. But But the time to run and the bicycling I do, it just seems like the time is... Is getting less available how do you how do you get that much time to bike i i suppose you do a lot of your um driving for work and and for things like this as well as for biking for leisure
4: yep yeah the the way i find the time is just cramming it in wherever i can um a lot of my role here at the league does award me um some time to ride and explore and validate some of these routes and events that we're doing so by way of my my profession i do get a little extra credit writing time
1: well here in michigan uh like the rest of america we're nowhere near uh kind of like european standards and in developing and providing bike trails and you know wide spaces uh to bike um just to kind of get to work and get to school and things like that but things are getting better aren't they
4: Oh yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of advancement here in the state. Um, there's a really, really big push at the municipality level and at state levels to interconnect all of these little trail segments we have, and there's many people in the background working on making a robust, connected transit system just for cyclists here in the state of Michigan. That's And great then in to addition hear. to that, we have more linear trails and natural surface mm-hmm. trails than any other state here
1: that's true Uh, well we are the trails state and I remember when they first did the first rail to trail trail (laughs) I thought well okay we'll see how this goes but they become very popular and actually it's one of the places that uh, my buddies and I like to bike because you can get on a long straight pathway normally and you can find many of them with without a lot of road crossings yeah,
4: there's there's an abundance of those multi-use old rail bed corridors here in Michigan that do offer that beautiful unique kind of experience even in an urban environment where you can kind of escape it for a moment and have a safe place to ride.
1: Do you do you curate that type of information and put them on your website lmb.org? Is that is that one of those places we can go and find places to to bike all around the state?
4: We do, we have a couple options on there. We have um, maps and routes section, which we have been working on updating um, in over the last few months, and you'll start seeing more content populating there. And we also have our ride calendar, which is an annual thing that we do a print version, which is in process currently, but it also has the digital component on our website. And that component is a listing of rides of all kinds of disciplines, Rides, races, events, tours across the state, and the offering of of what you can do as a cyclist. And it has many variables on there, but it is a very good guide if you're looking for a way to go enjoy cycling in Michigan.
1: Does the League of Michigan Bicyclists actually organize and and uh, put together um, you know tours and events on your own?
4: Absolutely, we've been doing that almost as long as we've been in existence. So more than 40 years, we've been putting events on here in Michigan. One of our showcase events does focus on those rail trails you were speaking about a minute ago, Dave, and that is the Michigander. It is our second year hosting that event. This year, it's gonna be July 22nd through July 28th. And that event focuses currently on urban areas and the rail trail systems that we have here in Michigan. <clears throat> we also have other offerings like a single day event with multiple disciplines and even a family fun um, ride duration called Hub Fest that's going to be based out at Tecumseh, Michigan on June 10th of this year. And then we have our event MUP in the UP, which is July 8th through the 14th this year. And then we also have our April event, which is Shoreline West. starts in Montague and heads up to Mackinac City along the Lake Michigan shoreline. Great ride, very fun event, and that one is our August 5th through August 12th event this year.
1: Now, you mentioned the Michigander to start out. That's the one you're bringing back, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
4: We brought it back last year by way of doing South Haven to Port Huron on, on that rail trail system you t- talked about for oh, the cool. route. Now, when this, is this year we're
1: yeah, it's sticking happen. a
4: little east. Oh, okay. Uh, this this year it's July 22nd through July 28th. Okay. And um, it's going to start in the Ann Arbor ipsy area. There's some big things we're working on in the background for that announcement, and t- kind of traverse the tributaries and connectors off the Great Lakes to Lakes Trail Route One.
1: So. That, that sounds like fun. I'll, I'll look for that. Uh, so the website, I'll mention it again at the end, but it's lmb.org to find this information. Neil, I know you—you you, your, your organization works on advocacy efforts. Uh, I know you were involved in kind of changing the law to make sure that cars give a little more room to bicyclists on the side of the road. I'm really happy about that. Any idea how we can get people to wear helmets and to ride in the right direction on the side of the road? Yeah. Um, That is one big
4: thing that we've been fortunate enough by way of OHSP, Office of Highway Safety Patrol, we have an education director that is partially grant funded, and we were excited to be able to bring that position back last year. And personally, I feel that that is the best way to get people to correctly use the equipment and the infrastructure is by way of education. Some people just do not understand the need of a helmet, the reasoning for having a helmet, it's much like wearing your seatbelt in a car. It just gives that extra level of protection. And then uh, there's a lot of, let's call them old wives' tales about cycling, about where you should ride, how you should ride. It's always really good to seek out what the current laws and statutes are and rules and regulations, because each community the way our state is set up can have their own rules and regulations as it relates to cyclists.
1: Wow. So it I didn't know
4: Education that. is key and you will you'll start to see a lot more effort and we have some cool things in the works to make that education easier for the public.
1: Happy to hear that. Uh, the website to learn more, lmb.org. And thanks to Neil Glazebrook for being with us today. That's all the time we have for Travel Michigan for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Travel Michigan, where your trip begins at Michigan.org.
0: Traveling, let's go traveling.